All right, if you got your Bible, open to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation 1. Hopefully you have a Bible along with you, at least a Bible app that you can like highlight and scribble stuff in. If you need a Bible, though, we got those hardback Bibles around you. You can turn to page 1089 in those hardback Bibles. And uh, while you're turning there, while you're getting to Revelation 1, let me ask you a question. What is your favorite book of the Bible? What's your favorite book of the Bible? I hear a lot of times like Philippians or Psalms, you know, books that, that give us peace and joy. Those are great books. That's what a lot of times we hear in our culture. You know, if you go to some other countries like China, Pakistan, Iran, and ask Christians there what their favorite book of the Bible is, you know what answer they'll give you? Revelation. Almost every single time, Revelation. Because we're looking for peace and joy. You know what they're looking for? Hope. They're looking for hope in the middle of suffering. Because they're being persecuted, oppressed, in a lot of the same ways as the people that John was writing to when he wrote this book. There's Christians around the world right now meeting today who aren't sure if this is the day when the government storms into their church service, beats everybody up, Women, kids, little old aunties. There's Christians today around the world who aren't sure if today is the day where they'll be shipped off and never see their families again. And so they actually get training in some of those countries to deal with that possibility. Like maybe you've gotten some kind of training on, on how to share the gospel at Starbucks. You know, that's awesome. That's great training to have. You know what kind of training they go through? How to jump out of a second-story window after you've been arrested and you have handcuffs on so you can escape and keep preaching the gospel. That's the kind of training they go through. They get training in how to share the gospel in the back of a police van on the way to your execution. That's the kind of training they go through. They know persecution really well in a lot of of parts of this world. And it's changing a little bit in our part of the world too. It's getting harder and harder to be a Christian in our culture. I was reading an article this week. It was was a parenting advice column in the paper. And somebody wrote in with a question. There's a family of evangelicals that moved in across the street. Evangelical Christians. Should I allow my daughter to play with their kids? Or is that too dangerous? That's the question people are asking. There's, There's discomfort, even hatred of Christians that's growing in our culture too. On top of that, there's just different kinds of affliction we experience. Over the last couple of years, the the, the standard of living and the length of our life, life expectancy in our country has gone down three years. Did you know that? We're now going to live three years less than we did just a few years ago. Violent crime is going up around our country here in the islands. We've seen the stories. And then there's just the personal afflictions, personal challenges that you might be facing conflict with a spouse, conflict with a friend, frustrations, failures at work, drama with your kids, drama on social media, spiritual attacks, temptations. Well, here's the thing. No matter what kind of affliction you might be facing, no matter what kind of challenge you might be wrestling through, John wrote this book for you. He wrote this book to show you there's something going on beyond the affliction, beyond the challenge that you're facing. There's something happening 
that's just out of sight. You just can't see it right now. And we feel that. We sense that. That's why conspiracy theories are so popular. We have this feeling that something is going on just behind the curtain that I just can't see. The problem is the conspiracy theory nuts, they're looking behind the wrong curtain. John is writing to show us which curtain we should be looking behind. Because every once in a while, God pulls back that curtain for us. When the nation of Israel was being threatened by Assyria, God pulled back the curtain for Isaiah so that he could, he could see the throne room of heaven. When the church in Jerusalem was being threatened by the Jews, God pulled back the curtain for Stephen so that he could see heaven open. And then when the churches in Asia were being threatened by the Romans, God pulled back the curtain for John so that he could see heaven coming to earth. And do you know what each of those three men saw when the curtain got pulled back? They saw Jesus. Every single one of them saw Jesus. And so, family, no matter what it is you're going through right now, God wants to give you hope through Jesus. That's what he wants to do through this book. So let's look at how he does that here in Revelation. We're going to pick things up where we left off last week. Revelation 1, we're going to pick it up in verse 9. Look at what John says in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the affliction, in the kingdom and endurance that are in Jesus. I was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Okay, so this is John the Apostle, and he says he can identify with your affliction. He says he's your brother in affliction. Why is that? Because he's in the middle of affliction himself. He was a pastor in the church in Ephesus, and then he was arrested and exiled to this remote island called Patmos because he refused to worship the Caesar. So now he's living alone in a cave, just barely surviving. Look what he says in verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, just sitting alone in my cave. And I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Theatera, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Seven churches. Why did God choose those seven churches? Well, as we said last week, because seven is the number of completion. So these seven churches... They represent every single church that has ever existed, every church that ever will exist. John is telling us this is a letter to our church. Verse 12, he says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, we're going to find out later in this passage, these lampstands are a symbol of the seven churches. One lampstand for each church. What is it that a lampstand would symbolize? Why would Jesus choose a lamp to symbolize each church? Well, what does a lamp do? It shines a light, right? Churches are supposed to be shining a light on something. What is that thing? Verse 13. Among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe and a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The Son of Man, that was a title taken from Daniel chapter 7. It's someone who has everlasting dominion over the whole earth. It's someone who 
everybody on earth will one day bow down to. And guess who calls himself the Son of Man? This is one time when the Sunday school answer is the right answer, Jesus. You were thinking it. You got it right. Good job. Jesus is the one. When he was here on earth, he never called himself the Christ, never called himself the Messiah, but he always called himself the Son of Man. And there's a few things that John wants us to know about the Son of Man. A couple of details that we really need to pay attention to. Here's what to know about Jesus. Number one, Jesus is our priest. He's our priest. That's what the robe and the golden sash symbolize. This is the robe and the sash of the high priest, just like the one Aaron wore. And look at where the sash is positioned. Pay attention to the details here in Revelation. It's positioned on his chest, on the chest of Jesus. That's really important. When a priest was offering sacrifices at the temple, he would take the sash that he was wearing and move it to his waist because you've got to have your arms free to do work. You know, you're hauling animals, sacrificing animals. You've got to do work. You can't do that with a sash around your chest. Then, when you were finished with your work, you would move the sash back from your waist to your chest. When you're doing work, you move it. Kind of like when, when you want to run fast and you're wearing slippers. You take your slippers off, put them on your hands, right? That way you can run super fast with your slippers on your hands. Then, when you're done running, just chilling out in your carport, you put your slippers back on your feet, just like the priest would put it back on his chest, that sash back on his chest, when the sacrifices were completed. What is this telling us? Jesus, our high priest, made the ultimate sacrifice of himself. He died on the cross to take away your sin. He rose from the grave to prove that it was finished, and then he ascended into heaven to lovingly reign over you. It's done. It's finished. But here's the thing. Jesus isn't just chilling out in heaven now, just kicking back, going, man, I hope things are okay for all those Christians back on earth. He's not doing that, because what does John say? He's in the middle of the lampstands. He's in the middle. He's not above the lampstands looking down. He's not outside the lampstands looking in. He's among the lampstands. He's in the middle of the lampstands. He's with the churches. He's with every church. That's why we're going to hear him say in the next few weeks, in the next couple chapters of Revelation, Jesus is going to say to each one of these churches, I know. I know your affliction. I know your poverty. I know your hard work. He knows every one of us because he's with every one of us. Jesus is our priest. He's our priest. But don't let that give you the wrong impression. Don't let that put a picture of Jesus in your mind as just this nice guy who pats you on the head and gives you stuff. Okay, Jesus is not Mr. Rogers, or if you're under 40, Jesus is not Mr. Beast. Okay? We have to you know, clarify the examples for, for our different audiences. I asked my kids if they knew who Mr. Rogers was. They're like, never heard of him in my life. Okay, So we'll hit where you're at right there. Jesus is not just a nice guy giving out stuff. Okay, Look at what John says here in verse 14. He says, the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow and his eyes like a fiery flame. 
His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Now, we got to be clear here. This isn't what Jesus looks like now, literally, okay? He doesn't have a sword coming out of his mouth now. He doesn't have feet made of bronze. He's not Iron Man, okay? These are symbols, symbols of some big realities that we got to understand about Jesus. Like here's number two. Jesus is God. He's God. John says the hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow. In Daniel 7, it uses the same phrase there, but it uses it to describe God, not the Son of Man. So what John's saying here is, the Son of Man is God. Jesus is divine. He's lived forever to the point now where his hair is so white, it's whiter than anything you've seen in your life. That's why John's kind of searching for words here. His hair is it's as white as wool. Wait, wait, no. It's as white as snow. I don't know. Just think of like the whitest thing you can think of. That's what John's saying here. That's how old he is. He's been around forever. He's seen everything from creation to flood to worldwide pandemic to world wars. He's seen it all. He's experienced it all. Other leaders come and go. Nebuchadnezzar, Julius Caesar, Genghis Khan, Adolf Hitler. They all come and go. Jesus is still standing. He's been through it all. What that means is there's nothing in your life that he hasn't dealt with before. You can go to him with any affliction that you're experiencing, any challenge that you're wrestling through, and he can give you the wisdom of someone who's already dealt with it millions of times. Kind of like farmer's insurance, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two, that's Jesus. He's seen it all. And so that's what the fiery eyes are all about. He's seen it. That's number three. What what we're pointing to here is the fact that Jesus is all-knowing. All-knowing. Those fiery eyes of flame, they tell us that Jesus sees everything and he knows everything. He knows everything. He knows everything that's happened in the past. He knows everything that's happening right now in the present. He knows everything that will happen in the future. He knows everything that could happen in the future but won't happen. He knows it all. Like Isaiah 46 says, I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning, from long ago to what is not yet done. He knows it all. God's never surprised. He's never caught off guard by the crazy stuff that happens. There's never a time when he looks at your life and says, whoa, I I did not see that coming. That never happens. God's not improvising, just making it up as he goes along, just responding to whatever events happen here on earth. He's not like, oh, man, worldwide pandemic? War in Ukraine? What am I going to do? He never says that. God's never confused. He knows everything because he sees everything. He sees everything about you. We're all looking for someone who really sees us. 
We're all looking for someone to say, I see you. I recognize you. I appreciate you. But the thing is, we, we don't want them to see too much, right? There's always a part of us that, that we want to keep hidden because it doesn't quite fit the brand that we've established for ourselves. Well, Jesus sees you. He sees every part of you. And he still loves you. He's your priest. He cares for you. He looks out for you. Because, number four, Jesus is all-powerful. He's all-powerful. That's, that's what the feet of bronze symbolize. The feet of bronze. That was another symbol from the book of Daniel. Uh, in Daniel, it talks about every human kingdom having feet of iron and clay. That's not very strong. Every human kingdom has a foundation that's not going to be able to support the weight that's on top of it. And so that's why every human kingdom eventually falls. Every human kingdom is going to fall. It's only Jesus and his kingdom that has feet of bronze. It's only Jesus who's able to endure everything. Only Jesus who can achieve everything. That's what it says over and over in Scripture. The, the prophet Jeremiah says, there's nothing too hard for God. The angel Gabriel says, there's nothing impossible for God. The apostle Paul says, God is able to do above and beyond everything that we ask or even think in Christ Jesus. He can do anything. He has the power to do whatever needs to be done in the world, and in your life. He's all-powerful. Which leads to number five, he's awe-inspiring. Jesus is awe-inspiring. I mean, John says his voice is like the sound of cascading waters, like a waterfall. It's so majestic, so glorious, you just can't ignore it. A few years ago, we uh, went to Kauai, and uh, we rented this Airbnb right on Kilauea Stream. It looked amazing in the pictures right on the stream with this little three-foot waterfall right behind the house with a little swimming hole right underneath the waterfall looked amazing and when we arrived it was amazing it was amazingly loud this waterfall little three-foot thing the house didn't have any air conditioning and so we had to have all the windows open all the time and so the sound of this little waterfall just reverberated through the house 24 hours a day Anytime anybody said anything, everybody else was like, what? what? what did you, even if you're two feet away, you still can't hear each other. When Cindy and I wanted to have an actual conversation, we had to go sit in the car so we could actually hear each other converse. That was life next to little three-foot falls. Imagine life next to Rainbow Falls in Hilo, next to Niagara Falls. It would dominate everything about your life. They're just too glorious and awe-inspiring and majestic. When Isaiah got a glimpse of Jesus, he said the train of his robe filled the temple. The train of his robe filled the whole temple. Kind of like when you go to a wedding and the bride has this train coming from behind her dress. It goes down the aisle. Once she makes it up to the front and comes up to the altar, all the bridesmaids got to spread this thing all around across all the steps because that train is there 
So the bride can tell you, without telling you, this day is all about me. That's right. That's what this day is all about. It's all about me. And that's what Jesus says every single day. He is majestic. He's stunning. He is awe-inspiring. Jesus, he's not your co-pilot. He's not your life coach. He's your companion who also happens to be your creator and the creator of the universe. He rules it justly. And so that's number six. Jesus is just. That's what it means when it says that he has a double-edged sword coming from his mouth. A sword, that's a symbol of justice. In Isaiah 11, says the Messiah is going to strike the land with a scepter from his mouth. And then in Isaiah 49, it says that scepter from his mouth is actually a sword. Jesus, he carries out justice. He carries out justice. And you know why that's good news? What that means is you don't have to. You don't have to carry out justice anymore. You don't have to get even with people. You don't have to teach people a lesson. You don't have to make people pay. Yeah, you can pursue justice according to, to the rules of your workplace or according to the laws of the land. You can pursue justice, but then you can rest no matter what happens. You can rest in the fact that Jesus will carry out justice in full. He will. And here's why you can know that'll happen. Number seven, Jesus is glorious. He's glorious. John says his face was shining like the sun at full strength. The sun at full strength in all of its radioactive glory. Man, when Isaiah got to see Jesus, he said the angels around his throne had to shield their eyes at his glory. The angels even had to cover their eyes. Think about that. Whenever an angel appears to a human, what do they always have to say? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because the angels are so glorious. But even the glory of an angel doesn't come close to the glory of Jesus. Some people say they want to they see Jesus appear to them. I say, no, you don't. <laughs> you do not. I mean, look at what John does when Jesus appears to him. Verse 17 John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Like a dead man. And family, this is the guy who had Jesus leaning against his chest at the Last Supper. These guys were bros, but now John can see Jesus in all of his glory. All of his glory. And how does he respond? Like a dead man. He says, Jesus... Just, just kill me now. I, I can't take this glory anymore. I can't take it. Because he's finally seeing Jesus for who he really is. He saw glimpses of it before. Now he can see the reality of the fullness of Jesus. And so we got to respond the same way as John when we see Jesus. We got to respond with godly fear. That's how you respond to Jesus, with godly fear. Tremble over your sinfulness like Isaiah did when he saw Jesus. 
He said, woe is me, for I am, I'm devastated. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Tremble over your sinfulness. But at the same time, tremble over God's goodness. God said in Jeremiah 33, they will tremble with awe because of all the good, because of all the peace that I'll bring about for them. That's how you respond to Jesus. Trembling over your sinfulness, trembling over his goodness. There's a great new book called Rejoice and Tremble by Michael Reeves. We've got it out at the bookstore. I think there's a couple copies left. Look at what he said in that book. Right fear does not stand in tension with love for God. Right fear falls on its face before God, but falls leaning toward the Lord. Not away, falls toward the Lord. It's not as if love draws near and fear distances. True fear of God is true love for God. When you've got godly fear, that means you can also have godly confidence. Respond with godly fear. Also respond with godly confidence. Look at verse 17 again. John says, when I saw Jesus, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he laid his right hand on me. I love that. Laid his right hand on me, and he said, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead, but look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Godly fear leads to godly confidence. Because if you fear Jesus, you don't have to fear anything else. No matter what kind of afflictions or challenges life throws at you, no matter what kind of opposition the world throws at you, Jesus, he's laying his right hand on you right now, just like he did for John. And he's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You say, why not? Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. I've always been here. I'll always be here for you. You say, yeah, but it feels like I'm facing down death. Jesus says, I'm the living one. I conquered death. You say, okay, but, but what does that do for me? Jesus says, I hold the key to death and Hades. I'm not going to allow suffering or death inside your front door until the moment that I determine that it will be a good thing for you. I'm not going to allow it anywhere near you because I'm with you. I'm here among you. And so therefore, verse 19, therefore, write what you've seen what is and what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So you've got to write what you've seen. That's how you respond when you see the fullness of Jesus. You tell people what you've seen. And so that's number three. Respond to Jesus with a godly witness. 
godly witness. When, you, when you've seen Jesus in all of his power and glory and love and grace, it's just natural. You just got to go tell people who Jesus is and what he says and what he's going to do. You just got to go tell people Jesus is the victor. Jesus wins. And you can share the victory with him if you're among the lampstands with him. If you're among the lampstands with him. If you tremble at your sinfulness and tremble at his goodness, then you can tremble with joy because you've got Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, what an incredible picture of Jesus you've given us. Awe-inspiring, all-powerful, all-knowing, seeing the deepest part of our lives, the, the parts that we don't want anybody to see, seeing our past, present, and future, seeing everything happening in our lives and across the whole world, glorious, fearsome, and at the same time, gracious and loving, ready to say, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Thank you for this picture of Jesus that you've given us. Forgive us for treating Jesus too casually, or for treating Jesus too distantly. Thank you that the creator and sustainer of the universe has come to live with us permanently through his Holy Spirit. We look forward to the day when we'll see him again in person. Until that day, help us to live with Jesus every day. It's in his name we pray. Amen.